All of you who are joining us online today, thank you for participating with us. I love the time just a few moments ago we had to pray over our teens and many of you uh, adult volunteers who were going on trips this summer. Tyler and Annika, we are so glad that you are a part of the Sycamore View family. I want to give a challenge to the church because we all play a, a role. We have responsibility in helping ministers like have a long life in ministry. Last May, Tyler and Annika graduated from college. August, they got married. September, they started here. It's been quite a ride the last 12 months, and they're killing it. They're doing an amazing job. They're an answer to so many of our prayers, and we're so glad you are here. And I just want to challenge the church, especially throughout this summer, because I have a deep love for youth ministers. I get to hang out with them quite a bit throughout the year when I'm uh, at certain events, and I I, I don't like when youth ministers have a short time in youth ministry. So I'm asking you throughout the summer to send notes of encouragement to them, send them text messages, send them gift cards, get them massages, like whatever it takes, like to take care of their heart, mind, body, and soul. And if you feel the need to send them to like Bounty on Broad or Flight, it may be good to give them enough money to also take their preacher just for our bonding and connection. All right. But I just want to encourage you, don't just assume encouragement's coming their way. Will you help them through their first summer as full-time ministers? And can we put our hands together and thank God for sending Tyler and Annika our way? And for the teenagers and students going on trips, I want to remind you, and I want to remind the church, certain things I pray for every summer. And our prayer is not that our teenagers will fall in love with the mission trips or with Panama or even with church camp. Our prayer is that these events and places will help them fall in love with Jesus. I've said this before, like I, when I was in youth ministry or I was in a youth, uh, youth group, I, I sometimes had the mindset like God was on steroids in the summertime, but NyQuil during the school year. Like the summertime is when the Spirit of God was at its best, and then the school year is when the Spirit of God like, was on cruise control. But we want the summer events to help teach and train our kids to see God in everything else they do. So join me in those prayers for this year. This morning, I want to talk about what it means to share our faith, to share the good news of Christ. I want to talk about evangelism. And I want to do this in a way where, one, I want to help remind us that the role of a Christian is not just to be good people. There are people all over the world who've never known Christ. They don't know Christ. Maybe they have no desire to know Christ, but they're, they're good people. And they do a lot of good. And Christians are not called to be good people. We're called to be good people who have been touched and changed by Jesus. And we become a light to the world. So I want to remind us of the calling that is on us. And I also hope to preach in a way today that I'm not just giving you one more thing to do, like one more chore, like as if you will take from the sermon today, that if you don't go and do some of the things I talk about today, that you don't love God or that God doesn't love you. So I don't want that. So let me start with two quick stories. My freshman year of college, and I've told some stories about me going on a spring break campaign to San Francisco. I did this freshman year. 25 of us went to San Francisco, and we were not all Bible majors. I think I was the only one on the trip. But at least when I was in college, we would do this a lot. Spring break, you would just go to different places. We went to San Francisco, and what they would do when they would pick us up from the airport is they would pick us up in a couple of vans, and before they took us back to the church, or before they would take us back to wherever it is we were meeting and staying, They went to a part of town and they dropped us off. They just stopped, like pretty much at a red light. And we didn't know it was coming. And they're like, hey, leave everything else on the vans. You get out and here's what you are tasked to do. You have one hour to go these six blocks where there was a lot of foot traffic and a lot of homelessness. 
and you are to go and pray with strangers and to share your faith with strangers, and we'll pick you up in one hour, six blocks from here. Go. How would you do in a moment like that? Now, this is almost 20 years ago or so. So everybody didn't have smartphones, right? They're not like walking around with any kind of pad or electronics. So for one hour, and and to this day, I couldn't tell you the names of people I talked with or that we prayed with. I don't remember any baptisms coming from something like that. But what did happen is some of us learned like what it means to practice courage, what it means to take a risk. Sometimes how you can strike up a conversation simply by saying something like, hey, I don't know where you are in life. I'm a believer in Jesus, and you may not be, but I'm a person of prayer. Can I pray for you? Like it taught us to take risks. And the other story is my senior year of college. I took a class called Teaching the Good News. This was a class on evangelism. It was like 2,000 years of history of evangelism. It talked about methods and, and just, I mean, a whole semester just talking about evangelism and sharing faith. And the last project in the class is throughout the semester, you had to share your faith with two people and write about it. This was a task we were given. And to, look, I've never seen more Bible majors lie in their entire lives than they did when it came to having to turn in a paper because this isn't something you could cram for. It's not like the night before the paper's due, you can just write a paper on it. But I mean, there were people like calling relatives the night before, like, hey, I just wanted to share my faith with you and see how you respond. And they would somehow write about it. But we also had people who decided to do stuff throughout that semester where they started a laundromat ministry. That they would go into a laundromat with quarters. And when people were taking their clothes from the washer to the dryer, they would feed quarters into the dryer for them. And if you remember going to laundromats, especially before cell phones, like you were there for a long time. And they would learn how to share their faith in a place like that. At the time, I was uh, invited to do jail ministry, prison ministry. So both of my stories came from working with inmates studying through glass, studying the Bible, and helping to lead people to Christ. And both of the men that I got to study with ended up making decisions to live for Jesus and to be baptized into Christ. So I don't know what it would look like for you, maybe not to take the challenge, but to ask the question in prayer of God the rest of this year, will you open a door? for me to tell somebody I know or tell somebody I don't know about what Jesus means to me. Because I think we're in space today. I want to believe that even those online, I want to believe that we believe that sharing faith is a good thing to do. But I also think we believe that there is a great deal of fear because we don't want to step into a situation of feeling adequate or like we're not equipped or that we do more harm than we do good. Like, I don't think we ever want to talk to anybody about Jesus where they don't like Jesus more after an encounter with us than they did before, right? So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're in a series right now called Squad, Why We Need Each Other. And it's based on Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, especially verse 42. And here's how these few verses go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, 
praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I want you to look just at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And, and you, maybe you're able to see on the screen a few words that I put bold in italics on. I want you to notice these words. I want to give you a few things about the book of Acts to think about. So if you're taking notes or you circle things in your Bible, the next few moments are going to be for you, all right? One interesting thing to know about the book of Acts, it's the only book in the New Testament that never mentions the word love. All other 20 books, 26 books do. And that's a fact that is completely useless to you. It, like, you don't need it. Uh, but if you're ever in, you know, some conversation with some of your friends from Highland or White Station or Bellevue or Oliver Creek, and you just want to stump them on the Bible, you can just ask, what book in the New Testament never mentions the word love? And you know it's the book of Acts. But you don't need to know that information. Here's what you do need to know. The word devoted shows up six times in the book of Acts. And we're going to talk about this more in two weeks. And this word devoted, I mean, it's a heavy word. Like this is about commitment and covenant. Like you're all in. These aren't people who are just checking boxes. Like they are fully committed. They are devoted to living together as a community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And when you read the book of Acts, the apostles' teaching, the teaching that comes from the church, it's not about how to get the worship service right. It's not about the flow of worship or how many songs you sing or is communion before or after the message. It's not about programming in the life of the church. The apostles' teaching is about death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's about the life of Christ. So when you see them teach, it's to help move people who don't know Jesus into relationship with Jesus and help the church understand their calling as they live out their faith in everyday life. The word fellowship. This is the only time it shows up in the book of Acts. This is it. But it does show up 19 times in the New Testament, mostly with Paul. And when you see fellowship show up, and I've tried to teach on this some over the last few months, I don't want you to think friends are just hanging out together. Sometimes we do this, and not just in this church, like if you're with people, and sometimes we'll say things like, hey, our life group's getting together tonight, or our Bible class is getting together on Sunday morning, but hey, we're just going to fellowship, meaning like we're not going deep tonight, we're not, we're not having a Bible study, we're just hanging out, and I don't want you to think fellowship and hanging out are the same thing. Fellowship had mission and purpose and substance to it. They devoted themselves to it. The breaking of bread shows up about 12 times in the entire New Testament, five of them in the book of Acts. And every time it shows up in the book of Acts, it's in the context of community, of the church. And I think in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I think this is referring to the Eucharist, to communion, to the bread and, and cup, not just to a meal that the church is eating together. I think this became a regular part of who they were. It had impact. It had meaning. Like when they got together, they were celebrating all Jesus had done for them. And when they did this, it was in the context of community, reminding them of purpose and mission. And they also devoted themselves to prayer. And when you see prayer, and, and actually in your version, like it's, it's literally the prayers, not just prayer, but they devote themselves to the prayers. So there's a set time and a place and there's a setting where they would pray and how they would pray. And in the book of Acts, when the church prays, usually it's the church together praying to God, not individual people, though I'm sure they were all for that and promoted it. But it's the church coming together to pray for things like boldness and courage and for the advancement of the gospel. Like this is how you saw people pray. 
And I want to show you in the book of Acts, there are eight summaries that are pretty important to the book. And I'm going to go through these quickly because the first summary you get is in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. But here are the other summaries that you see in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 34, it says this, With great power the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. In Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, you get a summary. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the peoples, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. I want you to notice how many of these summaries have... Uh, the number grew, the gospel spread. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. In chapter 9, verse 31, just after Saul's conversion, you get a summary that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria uh, uh, joined a time of peace was strengthened. Then the church throughout those areas enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. In Acts chapter 12, verse 24, it says the word of God continued to spread and flourish. In Acts chapter 16, verse 5, it says the churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. In Acts chapter 19, verse 20, it says in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I want you to notice, in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are baptized. And those 3,000 people are in Jerusalem at the same time. They came to Jerusalem for the same thing. They came to Jerusalem for Passover. They came to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, because this is what you did. They encountered Jesus together. Through that, a church was formed. The church was formed. So these are people who had similar values, but now there was this massive shift in how they thought about God. They had similar practices, but now there is this brand new mission they have been given. This was not just a tweak in their theology. Like this was an overhaul of everything they had believed. This was everything. This was the fulfillment of everything they had been waiting for. And now they receive this news. And what they do with it in Acts 2.42 is they devote themselves to these things. So here's the statement I've used the last few weeks. It's this. That in Acts chapter 2 is not just how people get saved. It's what saved people do. It's not just how we get saved. It's what do saved people do. Uh, so what I want to do for a few moments is talk about post-conversion. And then I want to come back and talk about pre-conversion. Uh, and, and I think it's important, and I try to teach this. Why I think post-conversion is so important is this. Jesus is just as interested in people after conversion as he is before conversion. That's the, I think sometimes our mindset is Jesus is really passionate about seeking and saving the lost, and then after that, it's like, just don't do bad stuff that can mess you up for eternity. Like the same Jesus who invites you into the waters of baptism is the same Jesus who invites you out of the waters of baptism to live a life with Jesus for the rest of your life. Jesus is just as passionate about people after you're saved as he is before you were saved. And if Jesus has this mindset, the church should too. So it's not just how can we get people saved, how can we get people baptized, but it's us taking seriously of how we help people live into their baptisms. 
This is the mission of the church. John Wesley, the great revivalist, this, this may be a part that's sometimes not remembered much in some of the revivals and awakenings that have happened throughout the last few hundred years. John Wesley said this, I determined not to strike in one place where I could not follow the blow. Billy Graham revivals would do this. The Billy Graham didn't just want to come into arenas and cities, bring tens of thousands of people together and preach and help lead people to Christ, but then have like those people have nowhere to go. So what they would do for John Wesley, what they would do before revivals or Billy Graham, or maybe some of you have been a part of revivals or gospel meetings that did things similar to this, but it wasn't just how do we get people into a space where there's worship and there's energy and it's vibrant and the word of God is shared and then people come to Jesus. It's before that they would go and meet with church leaders and with churches to prepare them to disciple the people who came to know Jesus in the revival. They were trying to take post-conversion seriously. I was invited to do a discipleship weekend at this church a few years ago. And this church had invited in a group that went door knocking around the area of the church. And the response from that was 72 people surrendered their lives to Jesus in baptism. 72 in one weekend. And they invited me in about six months later to talk about discipleship. And one question I had was, of those 72... I'm just curious how many are connected to the church, this church or somewhere else, that you're aware of. And their response was two. Two of the 72. Now, I'm not saying that those other 70 didn't count, that their baptisms didn't take, because it's not our job to judge who is in and who is out. But it is our responsibility as the church to live intentionally to help save people live into what it means to be saved, to help baptize people live a baptized life, to help people who surrender their life to Jesus, to thrive with Jesus in community. Like this is our responsibility. This is like God has given us this task. This is what we do. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the whole church comes together. They're devoted to these certain things. And one thing you need to remember in Acts 2 is like all 3,000 people, they experience the same thing. Like they, they experience Jesus in the same way. And if you're ever with people who have encounters with God that are memorable and unforgettable, like there's a close-knit community that is formed. It happened. And what I want to talk about in a couple of weeks is how that community, there were a lot of challenges. The further that community went beyond Pentecost and beyond Jerusalem, the more challenges the community faced. And the more they had to be reminded of what it means to live out the principles in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So let me ask this. Have you ever lost something of great value to you? Have you ever lost anything of great value? And I'm not going to ask people who have lost wedding rings to show your hands today because I don't want to embarrass you or shame you. I'm a preacher that likes to protect the dignity of people. If you're sitting next to somebody who lost their wedding ring at any point, will you just show your hand, all right? You know what I'm saying? Got a few in the house. (laughs) A few years ago, Casey lost her wedding ring. Now, Casey, uh, I mean, we, we know, like, the only time I ever take my wedding ring off is when I'm lifting weights or when I'm doing yard work. She knows that. Other than that, it's always on my hand. There are a few times Casey will take her ring off, and, and she didn't remember when she did it, but she, she lost her wedding ring a few years ago. This was, it was awful. She was devastated. And let me tell you what Casey didn't do. Casey didn't call up some of her closest friends and just say, hey, I just wanted you to know today that I have three rings that I haven't lost. 
I have them in my possession. Just wanted you to know that. I mean, it would sound really awkward, right? What she did is like, we turned our house upside down. I mean, we looked at couch cushions multiple times. We looked in every dresser, every drawer. We looked everywhere in that house. We almost sent our dog to get an x-ray just to see, is it inside of him? Like, you know, don't mow over the poop in the backyard just in case, you know, like, it's got to be somewhere. And weeks went by, and finally, I, I, I mean, we didn't talk about it, but I was like, I've got to start saving up for a new ring. And then one day out of nowhere, she sent me this video. She's giving me permission to show it. Here it is. She had put it in some jeans and forgot about it. So one day she put her jeans back on and there it was, just in, in the pocket. If you've ever lost a cell phone before, you don't call your friends just to tell them all the other relatives you have who didn't lose a cell phone. Like when you lose something of value, when you lose something close to you, you obsess over it. And do we feel the same about people who don't know Christ? That we're not okay that we're in relationship with a lot of people who know Jesus. But there are millions, billions of people in the world who don't. And are we okay with hell being more populated than heaven? So three questions I want to kind of go through fairly quickly here in the last few minutes of this message. And I'm just going to like scratching the surface on a few of these things, all right? And the first one is this. First question I want us to think about is, what do you call those who don't know Jesus? What I'm asking is, like, how do you describe people who've never surrendered their life to Christ? And let me just throw up some options, all right? Because I do think vocabulary is important. As a staff and as ministers, elders, we've talked about this some before, but what do you call them? Lost, unchurched, non-believer, pagan, godless, democrat, heartless, republican. And I'm kind of being sarcastic, but let's think about this, though. There are sometimes our mindset is, I'm not sure who's all going to be in heaven, but I sure do know who's going to be in hell. Am I right? Go to the next slide, all right? But, I mean, pagan, seeker, non-Christian, disconnected. Like, what do we call them? Because if you go up to people and try to convince them that they're lost, is it, are you going to have any success when it comes to telling them about Jesus? But it's a word Jesus uses a few times, especially in Luke chapter 15. Like, I mean, each, each one of these words has meaning behind it and challenges that we face. But what do you call people who've never surrendered a life to Christ? And keep it right there on that screen just for a moment. Because here's the thing. There's a lot of positive thinking going on in our culture, and I'm grateful for a lot of it. The church needs to be good at this. Like, we need to help. I, I hope that the message from the Sycamore View Church to other people is you were loved by God and you were loved by us no matter what. That you were of value. You were of worth. You were created by God. The image of God is on you. That whoever is created, there's no one else we can contribute that creation to but God being a great creator. So there's these things about people that we want to speak loudly. Like you are welcome here no matter what you believe or how you behave. And these are things we believe. But at what point do we have the truth of like, go to this next slide in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Where it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. 
Or when is it in relationship that we speak things like Romans chapter 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Because sometimes it feels like it's colliding with the truth that we want people to know. If you are, a, you are loved, you are of value, you are of worth. And then it's, it's sometimes hard to say, and you're also dead. You're also dead in your sin. And may God help the Sycamore View Church live out the truth and power of speaking the love of God over people and also helping us speak the truth to the world that there is a desperation for Jesus that we need you to experience. It's not just to add Jesus to your life. It's to understand that without him, you are nothing. The second question is this, whose responsibility is it? Whose job is it to share the good news with the world? Because the easy answer is the preacher. Let's get them into church, and I, I think we need to do better about inviting people to church. But sometimes the mentality is, well, invite them to church, and the preacher better do the rest. And every once in a while, and I love these conversations, every once in a while, people may come up and they will say, Josh, why don't you end every sermon with a call of invitation for people to be baptized into Christ? And I need people to hold me account- accountable that on a consistent basis that the voices from this stage are reminding people of what it means to come to Jesus. And occasionally I will graciously respond to those people and I hope it's graciously respond by asking when's the last time you invited someone to church who needed the invitation you want me to give? You know what I'm saying? Because the job of evangelism, of sharing the good news of Christ, isn't just for the preacher or minister, it's all of us. Ephesians 4.11 Like it does say, like, hey, there are some who are called by God to be apostles, uh, to be prophets, to be evangelists, pastors, teachers. Like I think it is an office by God, a calling by God, an anointing by God. There are some people who just have the gift of evangelism. But then you see responsibility like in Matthew chapter 28, where this isn't just given to the apostles, but this was given to the church. Like you go and you go tell everyone about Jesus baptizing them, teaching them. And here's one for you in Colossians chapter 4. And some of you, I mean, take this, like the beauty of this, it's just into your life this week. Like Colossians 4, 5, and 6, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Like this is a message for, for the church, for everybody. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul laid it out like this. Like, I planted a seed, Apollos water, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. But all of us have a part to play in helping things come to life. George Barna, he said this. He said, one dominant reason, and George Barna does a lot of research uh, for churches. One dominant reason underlying the increasing reluctance of Christians to share their faith with non-Christian Uh, pertains to the faith-sharing experience itself. And asking Christians about their witnessing activities, we have found that nine out of ten individuals who attempt to explain their beliefs and theology to other people come away from those experiences feeling as if they have failed. So we feel inadequate. We don't want to mess up. We don't want to say the wrong thing. We We don't want to not have answers to questions. So let me help paint success when it comes to living out your faith in your life like this. I want you to think about the postal service. And what is it every day that makes it a success when the postal service shows up at your house? And a success for postal service is the delivery. 
It's that it gets to the box or it gets to your porch. It's not based on whether the people at the home open it or respond to it or read whatever is in there. It's the delivery. It's that something was given. You have the responsibility by God. We have the responsibility from God that this is what we do. We deliver the good news of Jesus to other people, whether they receive it or not, whether they respond or not. We live out our faith in a way that people know it's Jesus who has made a difference in our lives. You'll hear some people talk about worship evangelism. And it's that there there are powerful things that happen when we get together on Sundays. Evangelism should happen, even if we're not talking about evangelism, that if there are people who come into our space, by the way they witness the church worshiping God, it should be a testament to them that these people believe what they're singing about. They believe what they're praying. And you don't got to get all charismatic with hands hands in the air and your eyes closed, but there should be a posture in you that lets other people know whether you know them or not that Jesus made a difference in the lives of some of these people in this room. And there's friendship evangelism that you'll hear some people talk about. That we probably aren't going to have a lot of success today walking through an airport, walking in a public space, giving someone a two-minute message about what Jesus has done for them and getting a response, it's going to probably last over time, which means we can never treat people as projects. Like, I got something to say, and if you don't respond to it, I'm off to the next project, but I'm going to stay in this relationship. I'm going to be present here, and I'm going to be sensitive to God of when I need to be inviting people into a deeper life with God. When I do have chances to talk to people, who are interested in Jesus, or maybe they're wanting to grow their faith, or they've never been baptized, but they come and talk to me. I try to meet people where they are. I don't have one method that I use for everyone. I want to meet people where they are. And as quickly as I can, I want to get people into stories about Jesus. I don't go straight to stories about baptism. I go straight to stories about Jesus. Here are a few things I believe about conversion. That we are not called to convert people to conversion moments but to discipleship in Jesus. We are not called to convert people to heaven or eternity, but to Jesus. We're not called to convert people to a location, but to a person. We are not called to convert people to churches of Christ, but to Jesus. We're not called to convert people to baptism, but to Jesus. That baptism doesn't save people. Jesus saves people, and I'm not minimizing baptism by saying that. It's possible to be baptized, but to never say yes to Jesus. But you can't say yes to Jesus and not want to be baptized in your life. I think a decent question is, if you die today, where would you spend eternity? But I think a better question is, what does it look like when Jesus takes hold of a person for the rest of their life? So here's the thing, all right? I get to do some things that hardly any of you in this room can ever do. I stand on a stage almost every week. And I get to talk to hundreds of people about God. And one thing I try to always take seriously in this moment is though I preach to hundreds, the impact those, ha- those hundreds have every week on thousands means that whatever happens in this moment when we're together, it matters a lot. And I want to help people live deeper into Jesus so that they can go live out Jesus everywhere they go. I get chances sometimes to speak on stages at retreats or youth rallies or conferences where some of the places I go, like people who come there, like there's an eagerness. It's not just like a Sunday morning, something you do every week. Like they're leaning in and I get to preach and proclaim. I get to do some things that some of you will never do. 
but you get to do some things that I don't get to do. That there are hallways you are in, there are lounges, break rooms, breakfasts, lunches, Zoom calls, dinners, work trips, that you're in places that I'm not invited into, and it's just as meaningful for the kingdom of God than what I get to do every single week. All of us are used by God. The last question is this, who is the good news for? Who's the good news for? And I believe it is for all people. First Timothy chapter two, verses three through six says this, this is good and pleases God our savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth who gave himself as a ransom for all people. I do not believe Jesus only died for the elect. I don't believe Jesus only died for a few people. And if you want to have those theological discussions, I'm happy to have them. I believe Jesus died for all people, even those who would reject him. He died for them all. And everyone is being invited into this life. And one of the things I love, an image of baptism I'll never forget, is an image of the entrance and the exit. And sometimes if you go to Israel, you'll see a few of these. Where people entered into the water one way, they exited the water another way. And, and sometimes it was just like there were just mass conversions. So it was like it was easier to get them in the water and out of the water. But there was also theological significance to it. That the same way you go into the water, like you're not, you're not returning to your old way of life. And when it comes to Jesus' invitation into Jesus and into baptism, everyone is a candidate. I want to leave you with this statement by Spurgeon. And he says this. If I were never, if I never won souls, I would sigh till I did. I would break my heart over them if, if I could not break their hearts. Though I can understand the possibility of an earnest sower never reaping, I cannot understand the possibility of an earnest sower being content not to reap. I cannot comprehend any one of you Christian people trying to win souls and not having results and being satisfied without results. So I want to ask you to join me in a prayer that I pray almost every day. I'm asking you, write it down, make a note, put it on your calendar. I'm asking God to give this church a burden for people disconnected from Jesus. That it will be something that we will carry with us, prayers we will pray and that God will continue to transform the Sycamore View Church into a place that has a burden for those, that is asking bold prayers for people disconnected from God, and that we believe we have a part to play in the story. So this morning, I want to ask our prayer partners if you'll go ahead and move where you are. I know Brent Patterson is our elder this morning, our shepherd who will be up here to my right. Randy Frederick's going to be in the back. Laura Moore is over here to my left. Jenna King's going to be over here to my right. And I'll be right up here to my, uh, directly to my left. And here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Is as we go to communion, I want you to think about this. Is there someone in your life who they're just dis- disconnected from Jesus right now? Either they're far from faith, they don't know Jesus. And as you go to get the bread and the cup, will you go to one of these people you see standing around this room and just whisper to them the name of a person they need to be praying for. And this isn't for us to bring in front of the entire church. It's just you can give us an initial of people that we can hold on to that you are praying for. Because as we go and get the bread and the cup today and we take it, we are reminded 
of all Jesus has done for us, and we're reminded that this is the only meal that we know we will take with us for eternity. And there are people who maybe have not chosen Christ yet that we want at that table for eternity with us. So let's pray for them today. And if you are here and you need to take that next step in your life, will you talk to any of us standing up right now of what that next step could look like for you? Will you bow your heads, close your eyes? Jesus, for everything you have saved us from, we say thank you. And for everything you have saved us into, we say thank you. For the bread and the cup that gives us life, the burden that you carried to help win us to you, as we take the bread and the cup today, will you give us the same burden? Through Christ we pray. Amen.